morning to you. As we have folks graduating, let's go back to high school for a second. How many of you remember high school European literature? Uh, if you don't, or if it causes you a headache, you can take two Capulets and call me in the morning. In Act 3, Scene 4 of Hamlet, Hamlet suspects that his uncle is having him carry his own death warrant to the king. And Hamlet tells his mother that he's about to turn the tables on Uncle Claudius's malfeasance. And he coins the memorable phrase to hoist on one's own petard. Do you remember that? To hoist with one's own petard. It means to be injured with the device you intended to injure others with. If you're lost, most Bond villains die this way. <laughs> you know, the super death ray ends up being what they fall on from the top of their tower, right? So we call these kinds of delicious ironies poetic justice. Poetic justice. And so today, as we survey the high water mark in the Esther narrative, as we zero in on Esther's chapter 5, 6, and 7, uh, we're going to see the soul-satisfying poetic justice of God, whereby wicked Haman gets his comeuppance. And from these three chapters, we will see five foundational principles we want to pull and, and mull and integrate negatively and positively in our lives. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 5, it's on page 523 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. Esther 5, page 523. As you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Father, we invite You as Lord of this church to please Speak to us like a lion's roar from Your Word. May we hear with clarity the reality of Your poetic justice that even though justice is sometimes delayed and deferred, it is not denied that You are a just God. And though the, the, the wheels of Your justice can seem to grind slowly, they grind to powder. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would learn positive examples to emulate from Esther's bravery, diplomacy, and patience, and that we would also embrace and reject the negative examples of Haman, of how he can be so small-minded and bitter, and how he flaunts uh, his arrogance. And I pray that we would see at the end of the story mostly Your glory and how that You have all things, even very... Uh, discouraging, disappointing, seemingly disastrous things under your ultimate control when our world seems to be spinning out of control. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, whom we love, whom we praise, and who we look to for life everlasting. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Word of God says in Esther chapter 5, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the outer court in the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Remember, she went to him uninvited. And if he didn't hold out his golden scepter saying, I will accept this uninvited guest, the penalty was death. So she had just risked her life and the king accepted her request. And then Esther approached and she touched the tip of the scepter, indicating she's accepting his grace. And the king said to her, well, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? She is asking for an audience before the most powerful man in the world, the uh, empire of Persia's potentate. And it shall be given to you even up to half my kingdom. That's the magnanimous way when you're saying you're going to get your way. He's just made a big, big check. And Esther said, not her request. She says something else. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, well, that, that sounds good. Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, well, what is your wish? And it shall be granted to you even Half of the kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Esther answered, My wish and my request is 
If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast. I will prepare for them tomorrow. Another big party, and this king loves big parties. And I will do as the king said. I will then give my request. And so Haman went out that day joyful and glad in heart. He thinks he's made it. He thinks he's arrived. The queen wants to hold a party and only wants two people there, and he's one of the two. But when Haman went outside, he saw someone at the king's gate. He saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and he saw that Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him. And he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home, and he sent, and he brought all of his buddies and his wife, Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. I'm really, really, really rich. And the number of his sons. I've got a lot, a lot, a lot of sons and all the promotions with which the king has honored him. I'm sure they love the party. And how he was advanced above the other officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, and to top it all off with a cherry, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I alone am invited to be with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And so then his wife, Zeresh, and all of his friends said to him, well, let a gallows be made, like a super gallows, a a 50-cubit-high gallows. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hung upon it. And then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman. And he had those ginormous gallows made. Chapter 6. Now, in the sovereignty of God, on that night, the king could not sleep. The night between the first, after he's had the first party, but before he goes to the second party. On that night, the king could not sleep. And so he said, what am I going to do? I don't have any night hall to get my Z's. And so he gave orders, bring out the boring books. And he had the book of the memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And if you've ever read official documents, they help you go to sleep. And it was found written how Mordecai had told how Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, therefore there was an assassination attempt. And uh, someone had thwarted that assassination attempt, and that was the man Mordecai. And so the king, who was sleepy, said, wait a minute, read that part again. What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai, who saved my life for this? And the king's young men read the scroll and they said, "Um, nothing. We did nothing. You ordered nothing. Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not okay. This guy saved my life. Saved the kingdom. He's supposed to be rewarded. This is a problem. So he said, who's in the court? Because he had not slept all night long. And so now it's early morning and his early advisors would start to come in. And whoever happens to be in the waiting room, and in the sovereignty of God, he had insomnia. In the sovereignty of God, he reads this story. In the sovereignty of God, he remembers he never helped Mordecai. And in the sovereignty of God, who do you bet's waiting in that waiting room? The guy wanting to kill Mordecai. Yes, you're right. You're good at this. You may have read the Bible before. And the king said, who's in the court now? Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about what? About having Mordecai hanged on the gallows. He came early, bright and early, to kill Mordecai the gallows he had spent all night having prepared for Mordecai's death. And the young men told him, well, Haman's in there, standing in the court. And the king said, well, let him come in. So here's Haman. And Haman came in, and the king said to him, hey, I got a question for you. You're my advisor. You're kind of my number two. I trust you. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, if you're Haman and you're full of yourself, who do you think he's talking about? Oh, he's talking about me! He's talking about me. And so Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, all right, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. It's pretty cheeky. And a horse that the king has ridden. And on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man in whom the king delights to honor. And let him lead on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom delights to honor the king. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse that you have said, and do this to Mordecai the Jew. The last person on earth Haman would ever want to do this to. Who sits at the king's gate. And leave out nothing you 
have mentioned. The king knows nothing of Haman's hatred. God does. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city proclaiming, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And we hate this dude. And thus, <laughs> you can just see him just seething all day walking behind the horse. I hope the horse pooped a lot. Like, that's just my own hope. Uh, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman returned to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh all and everything that had happened to him. And then the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, wait a minute, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. They see the hand of God in this turn of events. Uh-oh, you've overplayed your hand. While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. So he's talking to his family going, you know, this isn't going well. I don't like this. They're going, yeah, this is going to go very badly. And before they can finish their conversation, Haman is drug away by the king's officials. You have to be at a feast with the queen and the king. So he has to leave. So the king and Haman went to, into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, well, what is your wish, Queen Esther? and it shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even half of my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered this, and the king never, never, never thought this was coming. He thought maybe she's going to ask for a royal appointment for a friend. Maybe she's going to ask for some favor. Maybe she's going to ask for some expensive trinket from some part of the empire. And she says this, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would, not, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. And King Erasuarius said to the queen, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman, right next to the king. And then Haman was terrified. Well, it's about time before the king and before the queen. And the king arose in his wrath and he didn't want to say something out of turn and his whole world's turning upside down and friends are foes and foes are friends and, and he'd been wine drinking and he arose from his wrath and his wine drinking and if there's one thing you don't want, it's an angry Ahasuerus lit up with liquor. We've learned that in our story, haven't we? And he walks out to clear his head. He goes out in the palace garden to think for a moment. But Haman did something he shouldn't do. He stayed behind with the queen to beg for his life. He thought that was his only chance. Maybe I can make Esther change her mind. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. The king was looking like, how am I going to kill this guy? Not if I'm going to kill this guy, how am I going to kill this guy? And the king returned from the palace garden, from the place where they were drinking wine. And as Haman was falling on the couch, he was running over to the queen, begging for his life. The king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house, he comes in and sees this guy next to his wife when even the eunuchs aren't supposed to do that. And as the word left the mouth of the king, the guards covered Haman's face. The executioner's mask. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing in Haman's house, and it's 50 cubits high. And the king said, yeah, hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. So the first foundational principle I want you to see from this story is this. We learn from uh, Esther herself. That's the first person we want to look at in this story. And we see that we ought to emulate the bravery, the diplomacy, and the patience of Esther. From Esther, we ought to emulate her bravery, her diplomacy, and the patience of Esther. Now, repeatedly in the Old Testament, remember when we were in Joshua, the Bible would tell us to be strong and courageous. In the New Testament, the most frequent command of Christ is fear not. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, the Bible says, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Well, friends, we can learn a lot from Esther's bravery in our story. If the king does not grant her an uninvited audience, she will be executed. She knows the risk. She told us in the last chapter, she told her, her, her surrogate father, Mordecai, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Friends, how humbling it is that we are often silenced in our witness 
because we don't want to seem odd speaking about God. And here is a woman willing to lose her life to bring life to others. But we are silenced in sharing in 2018 because it doesn't want to be awkward. And we can learn a lot from Esther's bravery versus our timidity. We can also learn a lot about Esther's patience. Esther embodies Proverbs 25.15. You might want to write it down in your Bibles. Proverbs 25.15. The Bible says, through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. Through what? Through patience. Do you have that powerful person in your life? Through patience they can be persuaded. And a soft tongue will break the bone. Now, New Jersey's known for its soft tongue diplomacy. It's patience. We could learn a lot from Esther. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a soft tongue can break a bone. Esther takes a gentle, patient approach in chapter 5. She, she, she comes to the king and says, I'll give you whatever I want. She doesn't say, let me give it. She says, let me have a banquet. Let me have a party with you and your best friend. Pretty smart. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared. And then he comes to the feast and the king's like, alright, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. It's a great party. You really got me ready to listen. I'm ready. And she says, come to another party. And he loves parties. He goes, I don't know what's coming on, but I like this plan. And so verse 8, let the king and Haman come to the feast I will prepare for them. And tomorrow... I will do as the king said. After two parties that you love where you are most comfortable, that's when I'll talk to you. And it is only in chapter 7, after a third request, where the king asks, what can I do for you? That she speaks. i got a question. Are you that patient in your witnessing? It takes time sometimes to earn the right to be heard. Are you spirit-led when you share the Gospel? Esther seemingly has a golden opportunity the first night to make things right. But for some reason, she doesn't take it. The text doesn't tell us why. I think I know the reason why. I think it's because God's Spirit prompted her, wait. Now is not the time. Now, I don't think God's Spirit told her why. He's told her what? She needed to wait. And this woman had been fasting and praying along with the whole nation for three days. They were pretty attuned to the voice of God, weren't they? And so one of the things in hearing the still small voice of God is you've got to be close to God or you might not hear correctly. But I believe it was God's Spirit that prompted her to wait. She didn't know why she was supposed to wait that first night, but she did know what. She knew that she was supposed to wait. And I'm going to tell you who knew why. God knew why. God knew why that night wasn't the best night. And tomorrow was better. God was going to give the king insomnia that night. And so Ahasuerus would learn that it was Mordecai who was the loyal servant who saved the king from certain death. And that Mordecai was never rewarded for his patriotic sacrifice. God knew tomorrow was better than today. A day when the king would be better suited to cease listening to the fork-tongued, warm-tongued Haman who's had him in his pocket all through this story. And he would start waking up and remembering who his true friends are. Esther displays not just patience and bravery, but, but she's going to display a high degree of diplomacy. Friends, how we say what we say is as important as what we say. Did you know that? How you say it will often determine whether someone will hear it. Did you know we don't have to offend in order to upend with the Gospel? Did you know that? Esther understands Ecclesiastes 8, verses 4-6. through 6. You might want to write them in your Bibles. Ecclesiastes 8, 4-6. Here's what the Bible says. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? The wise heart will know the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure to every matter. So there are people you just can't say, what are you doing? They have all the power. But there's a way to approach them. There's a proper time to approach them. There's a proper procedure to approach them. And the Holy Spirit can give you wisdom on when and how. But you better be listening in. 
Esther knows something about her king. She knows something about her husband. She knows that he loves to wine and dine, so what does she invite him to? A banquet. She tackles this delicate issue in the most favorable setting where the king is as comfortable as possible. Do we do that when we share Jesus? Do we know our neighbor or coworker sufficiently to seek an opportunity that will work most conducively for gospel opportunity? Or are we sort of like bulls in a china shop for Jesus? Here's my chance and I'm just going to run through here with the gospel and hope that they get saved. In chapter 7, we're going to see how diplomatically Esther makes her case. Uh, You're going to see that she's gentle, she's respectful, and she's truthful. The Bible says, Esther answered, if I've found favor in your sight, gentle, O king, if it pleases the king, she's respectful and truthful, let my life be granted and my people's lives as well. And lastly, not only is she gentle, respectful, and truthful in her diplomacy, but, but most importantly, I think she's tactful. She's tactful. Here's what she could have said. Well, Mr. King, if you weren't such a complete moron bozo, you wouldn't have given your signet ring to Captain Awful who decided to kill everybody. Like, she would be right, but she probably wouldn't be righteous, and I'm pretty sure she wouldn't be well-received. Many times we'd rather be right than tactful and useful. We wonder why we're ineffective and unproductive in our service. And so she's tactful. Esther carefully avoids all the blaming words we would use in New Jersey to describe this situation. Uh, She she avoids all the blaming words that would make the king defensive. She instead employs describing words to help make the king decisive. You're going to notice her grammar is passive. She skillfully and purposefully uses passive verbiage to avoid directly implicating the king. She does not say, as we are wont to do, you did this to me. But she merely says, we have been sold. I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Do you hear the gentle diplomacy and how she's phrased that before a powerful person? Esther's bravery and diplomacy is profound. But it's also kind of newfound in the story, isn't it? Just a couple of chapters ago, she was a scared girl who took whatever treatments were needed to draw the king's eye her way, and she did whatever actions were necessary to keep his attention on her. Uh, She hid her identity as a child of God. She ate the foods prohibited by the Word of God. But now there is a transformation in Esther, isn't there? It's a different Esther than we've met up to this point. Uh, From the scared young girl of weak character in chapter 2, by chapter 7, there emerges an exemplary woman of heroic moral stature and notable diplomatic skill. Do you see that? Out of the chrysalis is coming a butterfly. Uh, Scripture seems to see this challenge too. If you you follow the story of Esther very closely, you're going to notice that Esther is named 37 times throughout the book. Only 14 of which is she called Queen Esther. Now, in every single instance but one, they happen from chapter 5 and later. Uh, One scholar noted it's like the Bible is going out of its way to say that Esther assumes the dignity and power of her royal position only after she claims her true identity as a child of God not really called Queen Esther in the book until she starts acting like the queen. Are we so focused? I want you to remember Esther started out beautiful, but now her character matched her face and figure. The internal was matching the external. So from, from Esther's excellent example, uh, we can learn to share bravely and patiently and diplomatically But I want you to also learn from Haman's horrible example because there's some things there we need to avoid. If we need to emulate Esther, we need to be very careful not to become like Haman. That brings us to our second principle today. We ought to flee the smallness and boastfulness of Haman. Flee the smallness and boastfulness of Haman. Haman the horrible gets invited to a private party with just the king and his beautiful queen. And he just about busts a button. He's so proud of himself. Look at the text. Uh, Chapter 5 and verse 9. Chapter 5 and verse 9. 
And Haman went out that day joyful and glad in heart. But when he saw Haman, when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and that Mordecai neither rose nor trembled before him, Haman was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now, a wise man once said, you can take an accurate measure of someone's character by the size of the things that annoy him. You can take an accurate measure of a man's character by the size of the things that annoy him. What does it take to ruin your day? Will the person who cuts you off send you off? Or does it take something really significant before you lose it? And Haman is the second most powerful person in all of Persia. And his boss is the most powerful person on earth at that time. Haman is rich. He is so rich that he can offer his king a massive amount of bribe to kill off all the adversaries. Everyone in the whole empire bows to this man wherever he goes, except for one guy, and he loses his mind over that guy. He doesn't focus on the thousands. He focuses on the few. The Bible says he has ten sons. Now, we don't think much of that, but they thought a lot of that. He talks about, he brags to his friends about how many sons he has. It's in our text. Persians considered the amount of sons you had to be a tremendously important accomplishment because the presence of sons supposedly demonstrated how you were especially celestially favored. The Persian religion very much thought that was a sign of, 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 of celestial favor. Haman basically has everything his world can offer. He has everything but one thing. And that's Mordecai's servility. And it causes Haman to lose his mind. And ultimately to lose his life. We ought to flee the smallness of Haman. Equally, we ought to flee the boastfulness of Haman too. I want you to listen to this windbag inflate. <laughs> Go to verse 10 and you're going to see this windbag inflate. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And here it is. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above all the other officials and servants of the king. And then Haman said as the coup de grace, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by them to be together with the king. How different is the statement of Haman than those of the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but see yourself with sober judgment. Think of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Haman reminds me a bit of, of Ahab, who despite being king and having everything, is, is really pining for one guy's little vineyard, Naboth's vineyard. And he can't seem to be happy until he has that little thing when he already possesses everything. I want you to listen to verse 13. Haman's own words, yet all this is nothing to me. He's got all the things that everybody could ever want, the sons, the money, the power, the influence, the status. All this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Just like Jezebel had to make a plan to make her small-minded Ahab happy instead of sullen and angry, so too does Zeresh come up with something fresh to make Haman the small feel like he's walking tall. How do I puff up my little arrogant husband? And so his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, see, also be careful who your circle of advisors are because everybody thought this was a good idea. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king, not ask the king, tell the king, there's arrogance in the request, to have Mordecai hanged upon it and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And the idea pleased Haman and he had a gallows made. Don't let that run by you. How big was that gallows? 50 
cubits high. This is overkill to the extreme. Okay? Uh, how long is a cubit? It's from the end of your fingertip until your elbow, and it depended on what society you lived in, depending on how long your arms were, but basically it's about 18 inches in most places. So a 50 cubit high gallows would be 75 feet high in reality. And that's almost eight stories up. It's a big thing. And the word gallows is misleading. The Persians did not hang people from a rope like a Western. They impaled people on a stick that they learned from the Assyrians. And so this was a giant stick, eight stories in the air, 75 feet in the air, that you were going to then stick Haman on to die. And so Haman has a sharpened stake constructed overnight. It's a big stick to make overnight. So that it is taller than the city walls. It's taller. That's why he wanted it to be 75 feet high. And it was taller than the nearby trees. It was the tallest thing you would see in the sun. Why? So everybody could see just what happens when you fail to give Haman honor. Do you, do you feel the arrogance? Haman is so committed to this that he bears the expense. This costs money, okay? He has men build it during the night shift. Now, I don't know what union labor cost for massive spikes to be assembled throughout the night, work the graveyard shift, but i got to imagine Carpenter's Local 666 in Persia was not cheap and not happy to have this last-minute request. But boy, was Haman happy. Verse 14, And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman. And he had those gallows made. Haman is so sick in the head that only the murder of Mordecai by the most spectacular of spectacles can please him. And so he embodies Proverbs 10.23. I'd encourage you to write that next to verse 14. Proverbs 10.23. A fool finds pleasure in wicked schemes. A fool finds pleasure in wicked schemes. Haman is constructing a gallows so all can see, but what we need to see is the often unseen, which brings us to point three today. We ought to continually remember that there is an unseen king moving the seen king. There is an unseen king moving the seen king. You need to always remember that. There's a larger story and a larger king than what you see in front of you. In chapter 6, the seen king is moved by the unseen king. The unseen king of heaven presents the seen king of Persia and prevents him from falling asleep. In Psalm 127.2, the Bible says this is something God can do. The Bible says, In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for God grants sleep to those He loves. So why didn't the king sleep that night? Because God didn't let him. Sovereignly didn't let him. Now, Ahasuerus could have tried to toss and turn and said, you know, bring me a you know, glass of warm milk and play the fiddle. He could have done anything. Uh, he could have just lay in bed, but he didn't. He could have sent for a eunuch to, to open the harem and give him something to occupy his time, but he didn't. And knowing his proclivities, that was probably a, a high-level option for insomnia. But, but instead, he, he, did, he could have sent for a royal minster, have somebody play my favorite song, uh, have the royal singer croon, have the royal jester tell a joke, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't. Chapter 6, on that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to do what? To bring the book of memorable deeds the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, the royal archivist could have selected absolutely any volume in that extensive library in the annals of their history, couldn't he? But in the providence of God, God made sure the book that was pulled and the page that was opened was chronicling Mordecai's forgotten act saving the king that never got rewarded. Verse 2, when it was found how, written how Mordecai had told about Bigtha and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. This reading of the royal archives could have put the king to sleep, 
But it didn't. Instead, it pricked the king's conscience. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Well, nothing has been done for him. This insomnia carried all the way into the morning, we said, because some of the king's advisors had assembled. And early in the morning, the the advisors come in case the king needs them. And who was there first that day? Who was the only one there that day? There weren't three people there. There was one guy there. The guy who came early to kill Mordecai. To make the king kill Mordecai. The king wants some counsel. How do you reward someone who saved your own life and you forgot about his? I don't know if you've ever lived under a dictator, but dictators run their kingdoms on fear and patronage. People feared Ahasuerus' empire and army. It stretched all the way from India to Ethiopia, which is modern Pakistan to modern Sudan. But dictators not just use the stick to keep the masses, they use the carrot to keep the generals happy. They offer little trinkets to people who help them. So when someone helps a dictator, the dictator always makes sure he returns the favor, or he doesn't remain dictator long and somebody deposes him. All right. So the Persian potentates were particularly noted for their generosity to subjects who served the king favorably. In, in the annals of history, if you made good to a Persian monarch, he really made good back to you. All right. And so the king says, well, who's in the court? I need an advisor who can give me an answer because I've made a big blunder. Anybody could have been in that court. But the unseen king made sure only Haman was in that court. And that brings us to point four. We ought to carefully consider the humbling of Haman. What a very carefully consider the humbling of Haman. The Bible says, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Arrogant Haman assumes the king must be honoring him. And so now Haman, since he's already rich, he doesn't ask for money. Uh, Since he's already the number two man in the empire, he doesn't ask for a promotion. What is left for Haman? Haman craves the honor of men. And he wants the status of king, doesn't he? So, verse 7, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn. I want to wear the king's stuff. And the horse that the king has ridden, not from the royal stables, but his own ride, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to some other high official who then has to do what? The king's most noble official, that person has to dress the man for whom the king delights to honor. And let that man lead him on the horse through the square of the city in front of God and everybody proclaiming, thus it shall be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor. And Haman just can't wait for this thing to happen. The request is like this in modern terms. Make some other official, high official, wait on me hand and foot. I want you to dress me in the king's own clothes and I'll, let's take the Secret Service limo over to Air Force One. And then let's do a little jog around D.C. And at the back of Air Force One, I'd like a banner that says, Haman is awesome, bow to him. What do you think? That's kind of what he's saying in the modern parlance. Verse 10, the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse that you have said, and do to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, and leave out nothing you have mentioned. If there was any man, Haman would not want to do this for. It was Mordecai. And so the unseen king moves the king to take what the wicked man most desires and hand it over to the man he most despises. God did that. And Haman can't refuse the order of the king. Verse 11, So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai. And he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man to whom the king delights to honor. So did Mordecai let this go to his head? You know, Haman gets a little power and he gets really arrogant. Here's what the Bible tells us, verse 12. Then Mordecai 
returned to the king's gate. He just went back and did his job. That's all he did. He went back to where he was before, serving as that low-level magistrate at the king's gate. Nothing about him getting proud. You know, it's wonderful that I was recognized, but I don't think I'm special. Hmm. He responds to fame and celebrity and accolades without getting a swelled head. But Haman, the Bible says, returned to his house. He hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. Now, days before, Mordecai was mourning, wearing sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate. Now it is Haman who is mourning. Verse 13, And so Haman told his wife, Duresh, and all his friends everything that had just happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife said to him, Whoa, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, that is, they see the hand of God in this, that, that you're beginning to fall, the empire of Haman is about to end, is of the Jewish people. You're fighting their God. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Just the encouraging pep talk he wanted to hear, right? <laughs> Friends, there is an unseen king who moves the seen king. There is always more that meets the eye in this world because there is a sovereign one who's sovereignly, but often imperceptibly moving things definitively. God's moving pieces, and we don't always see the movements, but he is. Sometimes God moves through the visible, like He did with Moses in the Exodus. Uh, there's a burning bush, and you can see it. There's a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night, and you can see it. And there's devastating plagues that are so obviously ironic that you can see it. But many times, God seems to take particular delight in sovereignly orchestrating seemingly insignificant, almost unrelated, random events to the ultimate glory of God. He seems to really delight to move in still, small, almost secret ways to our eyes. One scholar puts it like this. If you're summing up this story, God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night. Because a man who would not bow to his superior and because of a woman found herself taken into the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure, how inscrutable are the ways of the Lord. At the close of chapter 5, Haman was on top of the world with all the wealth and all the power that attends high political rank. And the next day, he's executed in utter disgrace. How did God do it? Well, that brings us to our final point today. Number five, we ought never underestimate the justice of God. We ought never underestimate the justice of God. We ought never underestimate the justice of God. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he... 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And this is just what we see in Esther 6 and verse 14. While they were yet walking and talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and they hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had to prepare. Chapter 7, so the king and Haman went to the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, and the king said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted to you? What is your request? Even half of my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found any favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, as men and women, I would be silent, for our affliction is not compared to the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, well, who is he? And where is he who's dared to do this to my queen? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in wrath. And from wine drinking, so he's liquored up and he's angry. <laughs> and he feels like a fool. That's who you want to face, right? The most powerful man on earth who's liquored up, angry, thinks you put your hands on his bride and feels like a fool's been made of him for many, many, many months. And he went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed. He broke protocol. You're not supposed to be near the queen. And he went to beg for his life from Queen Esther. 
For he saw that harm was determined against him from the king. That's an understatement. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch. So Haman runs over to the queen and is about to throw himself down and beg for his life, but he trips in the sovereignty of God. And he lands on the lap of the woman he should never be near. An angry, drunken, most powerful man on earth thinks his wife is being molested in five seconds when he leaves the room. And he has a typical husbandic response. You've, read, you've heard country music, right? This isn't where you want. Give me three steps. Give me three steps, mister, and you won't see me no more. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, the guards knew what to do, and they put the executioner's shroud over his head. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, he had an idea. He said, you know, uh, you're looking for some suggestions? I know a dude who built a really tall stick that would really be easily seen by anybody who wanted to impale someone publicly to show what shouldn't happen to the king. And the king said, hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And the wrath of the king abated. In chapter 1, in verse 14, the Bible describes the seven special royal advisors as men who saw the king's face. And Mordecai climbed the greasy pole of political government only to slide down in a single evening. And as the word left the mouth of the king, they hovered, they covered Haman's face, never again to see the face of the king. Ahasuerus knows that Haman has played him like a fool. Haman has tricked him into almost killing Mordecai, a man who served the king faithfully and prevented a palace coup only recently. Haman almost inadvertently kills the king's own queen. And so the king arose in wrath from his wine drinking and he went into the palace garden. And that's just what you want to face, that deranged king drunk from wine. And then there's the breach of protocol. And then there's what appears to him to be a molestation. And, and all of this is in the hand of God. God is, just as Haman was building and scurrying and getting his advisors and building these tall things, and you know, the hand of man is working to work its worst against the people of God, the hand of God is moving to make it worse for the enemy of God. Make it the worst way it possibly could be. Look at verse 8 again. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And as Haman was falling on the couch at the very moment when he fell upon the queen, that's when the king walked back in. And the king said, will he even assault my queen in my presence in my own house? Friends, Haman the arrogant bully, in the face of danger, quickly morphed into a whinging coward, didn't he? Begging for his life. Haman, who could not stand that a Jew dare stand before him, now groveled at the feet of a Jewess for his life. Poetic justice. David notes in Psalm 9.16, the Lord has Himself made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Solomon agrees in Proverbs 26-27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on the one who rolls it. So it goes with God's poetic justice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we come to You today looking at a story in history uh, where we see Your fingerprints all the way through. And Lord, how, how evil, hateful, arrogant, boastful, mean-spirited, self-centered people seem to be winning, seem to be grinning, seem to be obliterating the work of God, leading to the extermination of the people of God. And yet, in a single night, through insomnia, through providentially placed people, uh, through a eunuch who's seen a gallows built, through uh, a tripping of a tyrant onto the lap of a, of a queen... Uh, through every small detail, you were orchestrating the events. You were the unseen king. And Lord, I don't know where we're at in our journey today. I don't know where we see the Hamans rising or the gallows being built or, or the destruction coming or the setbacks happening or the wicked winning and grinning and getting high positions uh, and many possessions while we kind of struggle just to make it work. 
Uh, but we need to remember that there is an unseen king who's sovereign. Just as in the beginning you said, let there be a heavens and an earth, and there was. Let there be light, and there was. Though there was no sun, moon, and stars until days later, you called forth light, and light came. You are an all-powerful God with an inalterable plan, and we've read the book of Revelation, and it is clear. You are building a city, and the people of God will occupy it. And those who oppose will no longer be a part of it. And justice is coming. So Lord, help us to be on the side of justice whereby we receive mercy and grace. Lord, help us to put our life into the hands of Jesus who reached out His hands and allowed them to be scarred with nails. Who allowed His, his head to flow all the way to toe with, with the blood of our redemption. That the Lamb of God died. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. That Jesus does not call us slaves, but calls us friends if we will call on Him as Lord and Savior. Lord, may we be wise and not build up castles of sand thinking that we have sharpened a stick to hang our enemies, but may we look to a cross where You died in ignominy that we might have eternity. We pray, Lord Jesus, if there's any here today who, who haven't trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that, that today they might admit that they're a sinner. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And then it says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. If we continue in the journey that we're heading, justice is coming. And it might be 10 years away, it might be 20 years away, it might be 50 years away, but one day we will have to stand before a holy God in our unholiness. And so we want to stand before a holy God with Jesus between us and His holiness protecting us and Him advocating, this one is clean, this one is pardoned, I died for this one. And so, Lord, we recognize that that verse says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And it's a gift. We can't earn it, we can't buy it, we can't achieve it but we can receive it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would remember Romans 10.9 where You promised that anyone who says that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead shall be saved. Lord, if there's someone here today who knows they're a sinner and knows that Jesus is the Savior and, 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 and wants to move from believing about Jesus to believing in Jesus, to put their trust in Jesus, to say, I want You to be my God and my King. I'm ready to say Jesus is Lord, not fire insurance, but Lord of my life, and He gets to call the shots. We know that You are able to save just as You've done to so many of us. If you want to do that, I'm going to pray right now. And you can pray with me. And in the quietness of your heart, you can invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Your prayer can go something like this. It's not magical, but it needs to be heartfelt. It needs to be real. It needs to be that you're ready to do business with the King. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And I know that Jesus is the sole mediator between God and man. And so I look to your Son to make me clean, and whole and righteous. I look to the righteousness of Christ that you would put your wrath on the cross and your love on me. And help me to stand for you. Help me to be diplomatic and patient and wise. Help me to share tactfully and truthfully and boldly, Lord. Give us opportunities to share the Gospel this week, this month, this year that others would meet the unseen King and experience the joys of life with Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.